And I think that the truths that we can learn uh, are not altogether separate by any stretch of the imagination, but they can be thought about, they can be digested and meditated on together. And so really I have two truths for us this morning to consider, one out of each account that we just read, the first out of the parable, and it's this, we must honor the Son whom the Father has sent. We must honor the Son whom the Father has sent. Some of you in this room may very well have firsthand experience of the fact that the life of a landlord can be hard. It can be difficult. It can even be a nightmare situation at times. I remember when we moved up here now six and a half years ago. So about seven years ago, we were considering whether to put our house in Southern California on the market or whether to keep it and use it as a rental property. The market had taken a a big tumble. We were going to uh, lose a lot of money that we put into the house. And so we considered maybe we should just hold on to it. And then the horror story started to roll in. The apathy of renters, leaving things in disrepair, not paying rent and the, the legal hassle in order to deal with such individuals. It was too much. The story that Jesus tells to those who are listening and to the religious leaders of his day is a nightmare of sorts in first century Jewish culture. The picture Jesus paints, one of uh, great lands, hired hands who lived and worked on the property, distant owners who governed from afar, all those things were, it was a familiar picture. Therefore, the story that Jesus tells is, is readily accessible to the minds and to the experience of those who first heard it. And those who first heard it, the them in the opening verse of chapter 12 is not just, as I said, it's not just those who are gathered listening. It is specifically the religious leaders of the day. Those who have been trying to pin Jesus down for months, even years. It's a story for them. It's a story about them. And as we'll see, they know it and they still don't care. It's really a story about God's working in the world to set apart a people for himself. In many ways, this parable covers redemptive history from the Exodus all the way up to Jesus. And so I want to pick it apart, asking what it teaches us about God, what it teaches us about us, And that begins, I think, by getting all of the characters straight. First, we have the man who plants a vineyard. He takes great care in this crop. He puts a fence around it. He puts a tower up for protection. He has great hopes for this crop. He digs a pit for the fruit, the sweet wine that will flow from all the grapes that will be produced by these vines that he has so carefully put in place. The man, of course, is God. 
The man is God the Father, and the vineyard that he is planting is the nation of Israel. It's his people. And this was not a new picture for the Jews. They had heard this picture before. It rang true in their understanding of God's Word in the Old Testament. Places like Psalm 80, verses 8 through 10, a song of Asaph. He says, you brought out a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and it filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. But even more familiar would have been Isaiah 5. This passage for sure would have been ringing in the ears of those who first heard this story from Jesus' lips. Let me read it. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and he cleared it of stones and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So God the Father plants Israel and he puts over Israel tenants The Jewish leaders, those who are called to feed, to lead, to nurture this crop, and everything seems to be fine at first until the vineyard wants to see some of the fruit, fruit that is rightfully his, and so he sends a servant, and he sends another servant, and he sends another servant. You see, the the tenants those God has entrusted with this vineyard, they're not content to serve. The fact that the owner is not visible gives them the mistaken belief that the vineyard is theirs, that they're accountable to no one, that they can do things their way, that maybe even they can gain the inheritance for themselves on their own. And so they reject the rightful advances of the owner again and again. And who are these servants in Jesus' story? They're the prophets. The Old Testament prophets of God. Jeremiah 7, 25 and 26, the Lord says, From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear. They stiffened their neck. And indeed, history tells us that this is exactly true. This is the outworking of redemptive history. Isaiah and Ezekiel were hated in their ministry. Jeremiah was beaten by a priest of God for his prophecy. Zechariah the prophet was stoned. And the writer to the Hebrews sums up this tragedy in Hebrews 11 where he says, Some were tortured, others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. He goes on and on. And we ask, why? Why keep sending the servants? And I think that's the first place for us to stop in this story and marvel at the heart 
of the Father. Servant after servant after servant. Grace upon grace upon grace. Oh, the patience of God. Wanting none to perish, wanting His vines to live fruitfully and fully. It's that love and it's that grace of the owner of the vineyard that that causes him to do the unthinkable. Servant after servant after servant. And now, no, don't send your son. Don't send your beloved one. But the owner of the vineyard says, surely they will respect him. But of course they don't. In Jesus' story, they not only kill him, they shame his death by not even giving him a proper burial, but throwing him outside of the vineyard. Think about the audacity of killing the son. And yet Hebrews 13, 12 declares, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. When Jesus' story, the owner is, is through. He's done with the tenants. The vineyard will be passed to others. And indeed, that's what redemptive history shows us. The Jewish rejection of Jesus results in the implementation of what was God's plan all along to bring all nations to himself, Jew and Gentile, all who will acknowledge his care through the son whom he has sent. And these men to whom Jesus speaks this story, verse 12 says it, they perceive that this parable was about them with all of its violence, with the terrible ending for the tenants, and yet what do they do? They proceed to walk in the very path that the parable describes. But friends, this is more than a picture of historical significance and of sweeping salvation history. Friends, the father sent his son and we killed him. Our sin, our pride, our rebellion required it. And now we're called to honor the son whom the father has sent. We must. It's the only hope. You see, the end of Jesus' story, the death of the Son, is not the end of the story. Well, it's the end of the story, little s, but it's not the end of the story, big s. Because the Son, Jesus, in Jesus' story, after he finishes, is described as the stone of Psalm 118, the cornerstone, the crucial and completing piece of the new temple, this new and living way that God the Father has opened for his people to come to him. It's the gospel. And so honoring the Son begins by believing the Son. 
putting your trust in the Son. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, preached on the necessity of Jesus, and he says it so well. He says, he, that is Jesus, is God's beloved, well-beloved, and if you are wise, he will be yours. Do not turn your back on him whom all the angels worship. You put your finger in the very eye of God when you slight his son. He is God's ultimatum. Nothing remains when Christ is refused. No one else can be sent. Heaven itself contains no further messenger. If Christ is rejected, hope is rejected. And indeed, there is no other name under heaven whereby men are saved. And so the question is, have you embraced his son? Have you embraced his son? And if you have, what about this vineyard, this existence you enjoy? Let's take the vineyard experience and translate it into our experience in some way. Is this vineyard, is this existence that you enjoy on earth, is it yours? Do you have supreme authority here? Harkening back to the passage we looked at last week. No, Jesus has the authority. Because the earth and the, everything in it is his. Just because he's not seen doesn't mean he's not present. So honor entails acknowledging the son, but it also entails acknowledging the position of the father and the fact that all is his, the earth and everything in it. And that's the tie-in and that's what leads us to the second story and the second truth which is this, God is king and all kings are his. God is king and all kings are his. So kind of switch gears here. Tax season's around the corner and I know everyone in this room is super excited about that. And while it certainly can be a joy to give a portion of your income to a nation that keeps you safe, a nation that gives you a lot of comfort, a nation that allows you to freely worship, there are also those ta- your tax dollars at work stories on the news occasionally. You know those? They can be discouraging when you think about paying taxes to the government. See, for the Jews of Jesus' day, taxes were indeed a very bitter pill to swallow. In about 6 AD, the Roman Empire, the Romans had instituted a tribute tax for all inhabitants of the empire. And this tribute tax was obviously to run their government, to fund their lavish lifestyles, at least those who are in leadership, to fund the army that protected them. But when you got right down to it, the tribute tax of the Romans was for the privilege of living in the land of the empire. 
Now, how do you think that would hit a Jew? It's not your land. God had given us this land. Why should I pay you for a land that is rightfully mine? Furthermore, Israel didn't need protection. Yes, they were small. They were the least among peoples. And yet, how had God shown that He was their divine protector? So indeed, the Roman tribute tax for the Jew was a bitter pill resulting in more than one rebellion and uprising in that day. Even the coin, even the very denarius that was used to pay this tax, it was this small silver coin. It was a direct assault on Israel's values and belief. Inscribed on the coin, in addition to this image of the emperor, was the statement, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And then on the back, Pontifex Maximus. In other words, high priest. You see, this is the emotional context that Jesus finds himself in as these Pharisees and the Herodians, they come to Jesus with a question. Now, let's just stop and and think about those two groups. We talked about the groups last week that made up the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees and and, and the Herodians, they were an odd couple politically. It was odd that they were coming together to Jesus. The Pharisees were the Jewish conservatives of the day, the preservers of the law, while the Herodians, they were the elite of the day. They were the ones hobnobbing with those in power and those with influence. I heard them compared this week to uh, members of the Tea Party getting together with the Obama administration to, to work together to accomplish something. But indeed, that's what's happened here. They've put down their differences and they've been wonderfully united by Jesus, by their hatred of Jesus. It doesn't sound all that far off from our own modern day. And they come to Jesus with with flattery that, that just drips with with insincerity. The end of verse 14. Should we pay taxes or not? It's another trap. If Jesus says no, then this influential Jewish leader, like some who had gone before him, is encouraging rebellion to the governing authorities. And for these men, there is no better way to deal with the annoyance of Jesus than to get the Roman authorities involved. But then again, if he says yes, he risks alienating the crowd of Jewish patriots who are longing, they're waiting for this Messiah to come and throw the Romans off of their backs politically. And so what is Jesus going to do? Well, as Jesus has shown before, you can't back the one who holds all wisdom and knowledge into a corner. 
And his answer not only avoids the two extremes, but it reminds us, it teaches us of our place in the world. Verse 15, let me read it again. Knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. You see, Jesus, what, what, in a sense, what Jesus does is he transcends the whole issue and he acknowledges the authority of Caesar while still putting that authority firmly under the authority of God. In other words, God is king and all kings are his. Now this is obviously, this opens up a a can of worms for Christians. The relationship we ought to have with the state, the relationship that we ought to have with the government that we've been placed under, even more and more, even more specific, how do we as a church corporately relate to the governing authorities and to their actions? Well, Jesus doesn't He just doesn't go there. He doesn't go into all of that. And so we're not going to go into that either. But what we can say and what Jesus' response does say is that allegiance to God and government has overlap and separation. It has some overlap and it has clear separation. You know, one of the things we've been seeing a lot of these days on the news are these signs, especially on inauguration day. Hashtag not my president. It's a sign that we've seen a lot, but it ought never be held by a Christian. He is your president. Because God has put him there and made him so, and it would be no different if she was your president. This is the teaching of Jesus. This is the teaching of the rest of the New Testament. Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those who exist have been instituted by God. 1 Peter 2, I'm not going to read it, but we looked at it last week in, in the discipleship hour. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Then 1 Timothy 2, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions be made for all people, for kings and all in high position, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Huge subject to explore. But let me just leave you with this. The picture that we get here is one of God's people in Babylon rather than God's people in the promised land. That's why Peter calls us exiles, aliens. That's why we give to Caesar what is his. Honor, good citizenship, obedience to the law, our prayers, even our patriotism. Sure, Give Caesar your patriotism. 
Now, that doesn't mean that we don't seek to change policy. It doesn't mean that we don't seek to be salt and light, but it does mean that our vision is so far beyond politics, so far beyond a petty tax. Our focus is on God, and we give to God what is His, and what is God's? You are. Everything about you is. There's no division. There's no compartmentalization. There's no dropping off a coin or a tithe or giving him a day. No, all of you is required by him. So give to Caesar that coin. God has all of you. You might pledge allegiance to the flag, but you owe allegiance You owe your life to the Lord. God is king and all kings are his. You see, this this pervades and trumps, no pun intended, any requirement put on you by government. We are citizens of another kingdom first. A kingdom that is bigger than our history. It's bigger than our heritage. It's bigger than our borders. It's bigger than time itself. And finally, and let's just end with this. Jesus held up the coin and said, whose image is on this coin? See, in a sense, you and I are the image of the kingdom. We are the coin of the kingdom. And so the question of application, the question of wrestling is, when we are held up, what will What image will people see? Jesus once again shows in these two passages, in this story that he tells, and in the question that he answers, that he is the one in whom are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he reminds us this morning to honor him. Because he is the risen lamb who is worthy. And don't despair when you watch the news because he is king. And all kings are his. The stone will outlast the coin. So let's live like it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for... The Son, the Son who spoke these words, the Son who was sent, that we might have life. Oh, Father, if there is anyone here who has never bowed the knee to the one you have sent, may it be today. May today be the day of salvation. And for those who have long trusted Him, May today be another reminder of the heart, your heart, our good Father, a heart of grace, a heart of patience, a heart that asks for all that we are and all that we have. Even now as we 
worship and continue to worship through a time of giving of our tithes and offerings, we recognize that you don't simply want that. As your word says, to obey is better than sacrifice. And so we give, but we give out of hearts longing to be more fully yours. Oh, Holy Spirit, you know these who are gathered here. You know what they need. And so I pray that you would take your word and that you would accomplish all that you intend for it to accomplish in their lives. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.